we're going to hear two presentations, one by Joe Aaron on some cases uh, and how to manage them, and one from Mike Sag on new drugs. And I think, as you all know, there's probably nobody who's better connected with what's going on in the antiretroviral field. So what I really want to hear from Mike is, which of these drugs do I really want to know and which ones can I ignore? Yeah. So uh, good. thanks for coming. Thanks. Thanks, Henry. So uh, that's a nice introduction because that's exactly how I thought about it. There's a lot of drugs, there are a lot of drugs in development. I'm going to focus really on about three, and then kind of three and a half because there's a twist at the end. And that way it's kind of straightforward. These are also drugs that I think you're likely to see uh, moving through the pipeline and maybe being approved in the next year or maybe year and a half. So this is kind of a preview of coming attractions. And as we go through our cases, first off, um, as far as conflicts, a number of the drugs I'm going to talk about uh, are developed by Gilead and by Vive. Uh, so I am um, a consultant uh, and have been worked on some of their studies. Uh, so you can keep that in mind as we go through. Um, we're going to talk about this new tenofovir prodrug. We're going to talk about uh, creatinine going up without any change in GFR, which is something that was a reminder to me that um, you can never really leave the first two years of medical school. Uh, they come back to haunt you and uh, describing the attributes of new integrase inhibitors and potential long-term formulations, long-acting formulations. So let's assume that dolutegravir is now available and approved as we go through this and also um, this new uh, tenofovir prodrug called TAF and also uh, cobacistat, not just as part of a fixed-dose combination with elvitegravir, but it actually is a freestanding uh, CYP3A4 inhibitor that you can use similar to how you would use ritonavir. So let's go to the first case just to kind of introduce it. It's a 34-year-old woman who recently diagnosed with HIV. She comes to you with a CD4 count of 82 and a viral load of 76,000. Her medical history otherwise is negative and she has wild-type virus. As far as... Um, next slide, please. As far as nucleosides, if you're going to start them, she's HLA B5701 negative. Which of the following uh, would you choose on her, assuming everything's available? Um, go ahead and vote. See, we're going back to the future, except the future is now here. So, Dr. Brown, let's see what you said. Oh. Okay, so the majority went with tenofovir FTC. Some um, really avant-garde folks are going for this new drug we haven't even talked about yet, which is pretty cool. <laughs> Love that. And then a bunch of other things. All right, so what is this new drug? Um, it's, it's called GS7340. It's a, it's a, it's a different type of tenofovir uh, formulation that in essence is really designed to get inside the cell. And the hypothesis or the thinking here is that inside the cell is where the drug works. That's how nucleosides work. They get triphosphorylated, uh, they become active, and it's really the intracellular concentration that matters. Well, it combined with that, the way that this drug was developed is that it preferentially gets taken inside of, of cells with very low serum levels, plasma levels. And the second part of this thesis is that it's really the plasma levels 
that have led to a lot of the tolerability issues, especially the toxicities with kidney and bone. And so the thought is that if you can get an intracellular concentration that is equivalent to say 300 milligrams of tenofovir with say a 25 milligram dose or less, then you may really have something. And so what this uh, current slide is showing you is, uh, so I'll change sides back and forth, but the, in the blue with the little orange dot is 300 milligrams of tenofovir, and you can see what this does in terms of plasma concentration. But if you use um, 40 milligrams, 25 milligrams, or 8 milligrams of the 7340 drug, you can see that the plasma concentrations are sort of dose proportional. However, when you look at the actual intracellular concentrations, you can see that um, the efficacy endpoints when looking at uh, this drug, you can tell that there's um, placebo no activity, tenofovir 0.48, and then you're getting higher activity with 8, 25, and 40 milligrams in terms of virologic response. And that's because the intracellular concentrations are substantially higher uh, even with a 40 milligram dose of the tenofovir uh, prodrug, if you will, uh, versus what you'll get with 300 milligrams of regular tenofovir. And then if you look actually at the intracellular concentrations, here's the intracellular concentration uh, of, of tenofovir in the diphosphate form that uh, it's here with tenofovir in the standard dose and 8 milligrams is roughly equivalent, but if you get 25, you're 7-fold, and at 40 milligrams, you're 20-fold, and that fits with what we saw with the virologic response. So the proof will be in the pudding as the clinical trials move forward. They're, in the, they're heavily uh, engaged right now in phase 3 studies. Um, and the, so the jury's out to see if the thesis, thesis holds. I think there's enough preliminary data to show that the virologic responses seem uh, along the lines of how they were predicted. Uh, the safety will be remain to be seen over the long haul, but so far that seems to be holding up as well. So it's something to kind of keep your eye on. And uh, these phase three studies, I suspect, will be wrapping up in the next three, uh, uh, maybe nine months or so. And uh, then we'll be looking to see for them to submit to FDA for uh, approval, and we'll see if that drug becomes available. So now, whatever backbone you used, would you, would you use a PI? Let's assume you're going to use a PI. And if you were going to use a PI, which of these might you use? And notice the subtlety between a small r or a small c out to the side. Or you can say, I wouldn't use a PI here. And this woman with the CD4 count of 76 and a viral load that was pretty high. There's a little feather floating. You get that reference? Forrest Gump. All right, so the majority would go with a PI, and the majority would choose um, ritonavir boosting, although, again, there's about 15 17% who are jumping off the cliff uh, with anticipation, uh, sort of early adopters, I guess we would call you. And before we get started into this, um, Christina Wyeth is going to talk to us about the real reason why the phenomenon I'm about to describe to you happens. Uh, so I'm going to just give you some information you can just bookmark until she really tells you the real answer. But the, the bottom line is that um, going back to the second year of medical school and pharmacology, at least what I learned was that creatinine 
levels were a pretty good marker for glomerular filtration, and that is true. However, what we didn't go into then, that we're learning again now, is that creatinine also can be actively secreted into the urine through the proximal tubule, and there's some enzymes, and in this particular case, there's this enzyme called MATE1. And if you use cobacistat that's now already approved and on the market, in combination with elvitegravir, it's not fair, and FTC, the cobacistat has an activity against this MATE1 enzyme and inhibits uh, creatinine being released into uh, the urine through the proximal tubule. Well, that sort of messes up an estimated GFR, doesn't it? Because estimated glomerular filtration. And if your creatinine is suddenly appearing to be a little bit higher and it's not related to real GFR, then you've got a little bit of an issue. And fortunately, that's not a huge difference, but it's, it, it is about a 0.1 milligram percent um, effect. So in this one study where cobacistat was added to atazanavir with tenofovir and FTC versus atazanavir with ritonavir plus tenofovir FTC, this is a study that Gilead Sciences did, it's called study 114, um, they were looking to see how well these, this new booster did. And the HIV RNA had to be above 5,000, any CD4 count, and an estimated GFR baseline of over 70. Well, you can see in terms of virologic success, there seemed to be uh, pretty equivalent and uh, 85 and 87% between the two groups and uh, not a whole lot of difference there. Um, there was a little bit of a favor in terms of the uh, overall about minus 2.2 in favor of ritonavir boosting, but it, it met criteria uh, for non-inferiority. As far as side effects, they were similar or AEs uh, between the two. A little bit less diarrhea perhaps with the uh, cobacistat group, a little bit more bilirubin uh, elevation with the cobacistat group. Uh, none of these are tremendously different. And then as far as renal abnormalities, which would be predominantly increases in um, uh, creatinine or proximal tubulopathy, um, they were roughly uh, the same, 1.7, uh, 1.4%. I think the real take-home point, besides the fact that there seemed to be non-inferiority, is in this, in this slide. If we look carefully at it, I promise I'd go this way. Well, I can't go that way very readily. Sorry. Um, well, maybe I'll try. Um, you can see at the beginning here um, that there's an increase in serum creatinine from baseline of about 0 0.1 to 0 0.15, 0 0.15, 0 0.1 to 0 0.15. And that happens right away. And then you'll notice that after that happens, there's a pretty stable baseline. This is in the cobacistic group. And in the green line, that is the ritonavir group. There seems to be a little bit of an increase with ritonavir. And it could be that that's a similar effect, although it's so small we never really picked up on it before. But the, the key point on the next panel to the right is that your estimated GFR drops much more dramatically, if you will, in those who got cobacistat. But it's solely because of this inhibition of the uh, mate one enzyme that causes a apparent increase in serum creatinine. It's a real increase, but apparent uh, decrease in GFR that is not um, actual. If you use IOHexol, which is the real way to measure 
for sure GFR. There's no change. So what it means though to us clinically, because we're not going to do iohexol in all of our patients, is that every time we use Covacistat, we need to keep this in mind. And that's why uh, if somebody has an estimated GFR baseline of say 50, you're going to be a little bit cautious about using the drug in that setting because if it, it will drop and then you're not going to be sure what to do with your tenofovir and it, it becomes a little bit more problematic. Another point of this slide is that um, notice that after you get that increase, it stays flat. And so it's all in that first uh, couple of days with the inhibition of the MATE1 enzyme. As far as lipids, a little bit of uh, favor uh, toward uh, changes from baseline uh, for the covacistat group, and that's especially noted um, in the triglyceride uh, measurements, although that did not reach statistical significance. It was 0.063 in a p-value. So if we're going to add to the so let's, same woman, CD4 count 76, reasonably high viral load, she's CCR5 tropic positive, um, so now, which of these are you going to use? And you have your choice of efavirenz, some PI with whatever booster you want, raltegravir, elvitegravir. Now you have dolutegravir available or something else. Go ahead and vote. Andy Griffith died. I mean, what can, you know, that's like the end of childhood for me. It took a while but for me to end my childhood. Wow. So I think this is a pretty good reflection of reality. The, the great news is that we have these choices, and if you think back to even <clears throat> 10 or 12 years ago, certainly 15 years ago, this is so dramatically different because any one of these choices I think are just fine, and you're really balancing the patient to the regimen that, that you think will work and that the patient thinks will work. Well, since this is a new drug talk and the, the only real new drug on here is dolutegravir, I'm going to talk about that. So this is a study called SINGLE. It's uh, looking at dolutegravir 50 milligrams plus uh, abacavir 3TC in a fixed-dose combination versus uh, the standards uh, afavirin, stenofavir, FTC, placebo, or placebo. And um, you, you kind of look at this uh, uh, study to kind of get a sense of how this drug works in naive patients, viral load of greater than 1,000, they had to be B5701 negative for obvious reasons. We're using Abacavir here and uh, stratified by a baseline HIV RNA. And what you can see is like with most of the uh, integrase, in fact, all the integrase inhibitors, you see an early virologic response that's different than the non-nuke. This has been seen with all the integrase inhibitors. The reason for that isn't 100% apparent, uh, but it, it, it is noticed. Um, the real place to look, obviously, is at weeks 24 and week 48. And in this particular study, the fixed-dose combination of dolutegravir with abacavir 3TC did better, even statistically. There was, uh, uh, there was no crossing of zero, so that even though it's a non-inferiority study, there's a hint that the regimen actually could be superior um, than a favorin-stenofavir FTC. And what's fascinating about this study is that there didn't seem to be a difference in baseline RNA. We normally have been thinking about abacavir having a little bit less activity when the viral load's above 100,000. When it's combined with dolutegravir in this type of approach, at least in this study, 
uh, there did not seem to be any difference, uh, regardless of the baseline uh, RNA. So um, the numbers are consistent no matter how you really want to slice it. Um, proportional uh, analysis with a snapshot, 90% versus 81%. Treatment-related discontinuations, um, there were uh, more of them in the, uh, this is actually the success, uh, the failure would be the 6% versus the 13%, if you will, um, and efficacy-related uh, were similar. So in other words, there seems to be a little bit more intolerance in the efavirenz group. And those are the things we're used to. And the numbers are consistent with almost every efavirenz-based study we've seen. There's about 10, maybe 12% of people who can't take it, but those who can take it do really well virologically. And so when you use intent to treat, you're really teasing out not just the activity of the regimen, but also the tolerability. So that what I would conclude is that these regimens perhaps are equally are equally effective as determined by the efficacy-related discontinuation equals failure, 95%. But the difference probably is related to tolerance and the ability to stay on the regimen. And so the Stalutegravir or Bacavir 3TC regimen in this one study appeared to be maybe a little bit better tolerated. And CD4 counts, again, we've seen this over and over. The clinical meaning of this I don't know, but um, there was a little bit of an increase in CD4 count response uh, between the two. As far as resistance, um, the normal resistance that we usually see with uh, uh, the Favarins, the K103N, G190A in a few cases. There was one K65R, um, but in the Dalyotegravir and Bacavir 3TC group, among those who did fail, um, they did not detect any resistance, at least by the time that failure was determined and the test was run. And Joe will talk to you a little bit more in his cases about use of dalyotegravir in a salvage situation. Um, as far as, again, events leading to withdrawal, there were fewer um, in the uh, uh, Bacavir 3TC dalyotegravir group, consistent with what I was saying earlier. Uh, those who did stop, one had a drug hypersensitivity reaction um, in that group. As far as kidney safety, this, I, I can't, I, I don't think anybody would have predicted. Um, so here you have the exact same type of phenomena through a different enzyme in the proximal tubule for dalyotegravir that you saw with cobicistat. Wow. I, I don't know. I, you know, if, if you're a believer in God, this is a strange twist of fate that, that he or she is throwing at us. And, um, but you'll see again this, this relative increase with dalyotegravir, just like you saw with cobicistat of about 0.1, to 0.15 uh, increase in um, serum creatinine. And Christine Wyeth is going to tell us all about that because I'm baffled. And she'll tell us exactly why. And I'm setting her up. So let's go back and ask the question. Now that you've seen some data, uh, let's go ahead and revote. And that woman, again, same woman, uh, CD4 count in the 80s, viral load's kind of high. Uh, what would you use uh, as the anchor drug with whatever nucleosides? Let's go ahead and vote. This is the same question you just had. So if you were taking Flagyl uh, for two months, you wouldn't be going to Cheers and drinking beer uh, while you were there. Look at that. Wow. So 
that went from, I think, 17 or 15 percent to 58 percent. So I'm not here to sort of promote the drug. I'm just giving you data, but I agree with you. The data are pretty impressive so far. We'll have to see how the rest of the data come out. And so, again, going back to our original um, question, now that you've seen data on a tenofovir uh, TAF, uh, pro-drug type uh, situation, um, assuming uh, data come on and these drugs are available, let's go ahead and re-vote on which nucleoside backbone you might use. And all right. So what changed? Yeah, thank you. So you can see nicely how it changed. Sorry, can you go back to that? Um, oops. Yeah. Okay. Well, what you saw was that there was more uptake by you all in terms of the use of this tenofovir product, but also notice the abacavir went up, um, where that was probably not hardly a consideration before. So the more things um, change, the more they stay the same. There was one other slide. I think it must have gotten taken out, or maybe this isn't the slide. So I guess it's out. But let me tell you about it. There's another new uh, long-acting version of dalutegravir that Shinogi and Vive are working on. It, the concept is it's an injectable. And I, I, the slide didn't make it into the deck. I added it last night, but that's OK. Um, it, it's, it's a little bit further behind in development. But the concept is that the pharmacokinetics clearly would support assuming the drug continues on development and its safety is good, about a once monthly dosing, or maybe even a little less frequent. So can you imagine? It's one thing to have the once monthly dosing. You gotta have something to pair it with that you can give once a month, but you can start doing daily or monthly observed therapy. And that could be really quite interesting in certain settings and certain for certain populations of patients. Um, and, and they could come to a clinic or people could go to somebody's house and do this injection uh, and, and see if it actually works. It probably will be given sub-Q, uh, so it's, who knows if it'll be painful or not. Uh, I don't think people, they would run if it was really painful, like anakinra or something. But the, the take-home point is that there's, there's a lot of new things on the horizon. Though that was a little bit too far off for me to really bring to this lecture because, as, as Henry said on the introduction, the challenge or the, the charge to me for this talk was to talk about what's maybe immediately on the horizon over the next 12 to 18 months, and I think that those are the drugs that I just showed you. But coming out a little further, say three years from now, five years from now, we really could be talking about uh, full regimens that could be given once a month, once every two months, maybe once every three months, uh, some sort of depot formulation of something or another. The hassle of that or the, the, the uh, detriment to that might be that if you end up with a side effect, um, that's going to be with you quite a while. But on the flip side, um, if, if you can give it once every month or every two months, then uh, the actual adherence to the regimen becomes, by definition, uh, less of an issue. So thank you for your attention. I finished a little early, I guess, uh, on time, and we'll have some time for questions. Thanks a lot. Ian, we encourage you to uh, ask questions up at the microphone if you want to identify yourself and come up. Mike, what about uh, dalutegravir, dalutegravir, tenofovir, and FTC? Yeah. The, I don't know. There's some strange reason that the people who are developing dalutegravir wanted to use abacavir and 3TC. I, I can't figure it out. Um, you know, Mike is smart about some things. 
my brothers. <laughs> so it's being produced, it's being developed by uh, Viv, which obviously makes uh, Bacavir. But uh, it can work with uh, Tenofovir and FTC, and that's, uh, and that's uh, some of the work that Joe will show. I think you can, you can combine it and salvage that way. But I suspect it would work about the same. There just isn't any, to my knowledge, any large phase three study. There's one study that allowed the clinician to choose between the two, and it showed relatively equal activity uh, when Tenofovir FTC was used with Dalutegravir. So I think it, it really works as well. That study that I showed you, though, was solely with a fixed-dose combination of Abacavir. But other studies leading up to that study actually used Tenofovir FTC, and it was seemed to be equivalent. Uh, Mike, tell us a little more about uh, drug interactions with dolutegravir and cobastatin. Uh, thank you. I, that was something overlooked. So dolutegravir is very similar to raltegravir. It's glucuronidated, so it doesn't have a CYP3A4 or a 2D6 pathway, which makes it attractive in terms of co-administering uh, co with, say, uh, TB medications or other things, or hepatitis C drugs. So I think it's going to, if, assuming it continues to play out, uh, watch for it to be a, a pretty popular regimen and drug to be used when you're treating co-infected co patients with hepatitis C or perhaps uh, patients with uh, uh, tuberculosis. So think about it kind of like you would raltegravir, although its pharmacokinetics uh, clearly support once daily dosing. Well, Mike, just uh, as you look at dolutegravir and raltegravir, what would be the reason to choose one over the other? Mm. Well, I think that uh, raltegravir is going to get a, a little bit of a run for its money because the, the drugs are, are similar in terms of activity and mechanism of action, obviously. Um, they both are glucuronidated, but the raltegravir requires twice daily dosing, and I think that's going to be a little bit of its Achilles heel as it moves forward. I guess we could argue that there would be, at the time dolutegravir is released, more pharmacokinetic data available that you might feel a little bit more comfortable because of the experience with raltegravir, um, at least for the initial time period, as the data for dolutegravir accumulate. But at least theoretically, if, if the mechanisms um, prove to be confirmed with the clinical data, uh, I think dolutegravir would be uh, chosen more often, uh, probably because of the once daily dosing. All right, and then in terms of cobastat, well, go ahead. You can ask a question over there on the left. I think the angst that you're expressing um, is something to celebrate, to be honest, right? Because, you know, those of us who have been around a while remember what it was like when we only had nucleoside monotherapy. So to have these choices is so fantastic. Uh, I think what you've just articulated also is, is kind of the state of where we're going to be in the next five years, especially as generics become available. So unlike the past where we didn't think about cost because there was, at least in the U.S., an option for generics. This will become more and more of an issue uh, in terms of cost. And um, depending on how the generic market evolves, it's, it's baffling to me um, why there are so few generics. For example, 
why do we have a shortage of doxycycline now? There's no reason for that. Or penicillin sometimes, right? And it's, they claim because there's no market for it and therefore it's, there's no profitability. I don't believe that. The market is there. You hear the screaming when you want to give doxy and there's none available. So I, I think there's something going on in the marketplace that's uh, aberrant. And, um, and I rant on that a little bit in my book, actually. But, the, but, but we'll see what happens as the generic, the, the patent runs out. And as the, as the generics try to take a foothold in the US market, we'll see what happens to them. But I think that could, that could ultimately be the tipping point for your angst, right? That if, if you can give a regimen that instead of $1,200 a month, is $120 a month, you know, I think uh, the payers rightfully uh, may say to us, well, why was it okay back in 2009 when you had 85% success? Um, why not try that first and see? I, I could see where that could be a realistic uh, outcome. Yeah. Uh, what, uh, can you say something about the resistance threshold for dalutegravir and elvitegravir? Yeah, so the way I would think about it, and, and Joe will probably get into this more in his panel discussion, I would, as far as resistance go, I would place elvitegravir and raltegravir kind of together. They have similar pathways of development of resistance, and once that resistance happens, then you have pretty much cross-resistance between those two compounds. Dalutegravir is a little bit different. I think about it more as I would, say, lopinavir or darunavir as I do a PI. The resistance takes a little bit longer to develop. It can happen for sure, but as I showed you in the study, if you stop the regimen or change the regimen of virologic failure early, um, and there's some fair degree of cushion here, you're not going to likely see dalutegravir resistance. Um, also, in certain settings, dalutegravir can still have some activity, probably not full activity, against raltegravir and elvitegravir resistant isolates. And I think Joe will get into that some in his panel in the salvage situation. Well, maybe as a last question, ask uh, Mike a philosophical question. Uh, some of us have spent a lot of time over the last five or 10 years memorizing all the resistance mutations. Mm -hmm. uh, not that we can necessarily remember them all. And it's very impressive that a Joe Iron or a Mike Sack can get up and look at a variety of numbers and say, oh, yeah, this is going to be resistant to this. Are we, with all these drugs and cross resistance, are we ending the era where we should know the individual uh, mutations and should simply look at a predictive genotype or phenotype? Yeah, I think I think we're there. Um, I think it's somewhat yeah, it's somewhat of a game. You know, it's kind of like Trivial Pursuit. You know, sometimes if you really want to uh, really focus on it, you can memorize them too. It's not that difficult. But on the other hand, you can for, look. Number one, resistance isn't happening like it used to. So in the old days, we figured almost everybody's going to have a failing regimen at some point, and there were only a few numbers of drugs and a few number of common mutations. It wasn't so difficult. Now, it, as you said, it's kind of complicated, but fortunately, the number of patients who are actually failing or having their regimen fail and then developing resistance is, is so small, relatively speaking, that look it up or go to a website and plug in the numbers. There's no reason to sort of you know, beat your chest and say, oh, I know which... K65R does. There might be some questions on a board exam about K65R or common TAM or, or M184V or something like that, but you're not going to get detailed questions about integrase inhibitor resistance, and there's no reason to really memorize it. You can just look it up when the time comes. Okay, well, I'm sure Mike would be happy to answer any questions over the front, but we'll take a 15-minute break, 
And then we're going to get to the younger faculty, and those will clearly be the best talks. So. Who will actually give you information you can so use. So I look forward to seeing you in 15 minutes. Okay.